Hey everybody, how are y'all doing? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Falling Through Bottles, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing pretty good. Enjoying these months of too many video games. Too many? Yes. Oh, jeez. <laughs> There's so yeah, for, many video games right now. There are so many video games. Yeah, for the for those of you at home, uh, just before this podcast, Alex and I were talking about both Armored Core and Starfield and how they have respectfully taken over our lives. And mm-hmm. that is just one of about a kajillion games right now that I kind of just want to play. Yep. I will, once I'm done with Armored Core, probably go back to Baldur's Gate just in time to ignore Lies of P. Mm-hmm. And by the time I'm done with Starfield, Super Mario Wonder will be out. Which oh, I God, just watched. I forgot about that one. Yeah, I just watched a direct for that. That game looks amazing. It, it looks incredible. Yeah, it's going to be great. And I'll be done with that just in time for Super Mario RPG, a game oh, that admittedly God. is a remake, but still. But still. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit much, which is why I like to have this podcast, Alex. So instead of playing the video games of nowadays, I can play the video games of the old and then mm. tell you about the plots of them. Mm. And I'm going to start this off, Alex, by asking you, what's your favorite beat 'em up of all time? Okay, so this is actually a really interesting question mm-hmm. um, because I I played some beat 'em ups when I was a kid. I played more in college, and I've played. A Shocking amount of them recently. Mm-hmm. I think modern beat 'em ups are like the best the genre's ever been. Yes. I think games like River City Girls and the new Ninja Turtles and Streets of Rage 4 are like far and away the best iterations of the genre. Yes. Um, I really liked Streets of Rage 4 a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also really liked River City Girls a lot. I still need to play that as it's well as the really sequel. good. Yeah. Um, so, but I also might say it's the, the last Ninja Turtles game that came out because that was a beat up with a dodge button. Mm-hmm. And it turns out, oh boy, does that mix up the formula. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. It, that last Turtles game, um, Shredder's Revenge specifically yes. was, yeah, like between like the really well done graphics, the, the actually differentiated characters and how they play mm-hmm. and yeah, like stuff like the dodge button and just like a pretty surprisingly expanded moveset that everybody had really yeah. went a long way to just making that like a really fun beat em up to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I would probably say one of those three, depending mm-hmm. on my mood, which one I hold on top kind of varies. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's fair because I, I totally agree with you when it comes to like if I was going to recommend a beat 'em up to somebody who's never played beat 'em ups before, I would recommend, yeah, like one of the three games you just mentioned. I, I'd even potentially recommend that new GI Joe game that's coming that looks terrible because it probably <laughs> is still going to be more advanced than anything that was back in the nineties. Yeah, probably. Um, it, and even going like as recently back as like Scott Pilgrim or Castle Crashers is like, oh, this is kind of rough. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. But even then, once again, those are still better than like what they oh, yeah. came from. Yes. And for me, it's a it's kind of a mix where like I think my favorite beat 'em up is actually not one of the most recent ones. Because mm-hmm. for me, beat 'em ups are tied with nostalgia. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like going into the arcade with my friends to like a Peter Piper pizza or you know, whatever your local pizza joint that serves you cardboard pizza and you play arcade games. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it was in your region. Uh 
you know, going there and playing like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game or the Simpsons game mm-hmm. or what have you. And like, yeah, those were just quarter munchers, 100%, yeah. but they looked really cool. They played just well enough um, based upon some sort of like license that, you know, you were very fond of as a kid. And yeah, revisiting those games, like especially when they were released on like Xbox Live or em- emulating them through MAME, mm-hmm. like you see the flaws that they have like right away. Yeah. It's like, man, yeah, these are just really one note. You play through them once and you're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I can't help but separate the nostalgia from that. Like it's it's impossible for me. So yeah, like for me, it's probably going to be like that original 1989 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or even potentially like the Super Nintendo version of Turtles of Time when they actually made a replayable beat-em-up for the Super Nintendo that actually was shockingly expansive. Hmm. Probably not nearly as good as, like, what Shredder's Revenge is nowadays, but a good attempt at putting a beat-em-up on a, you know, actual console and not making it a nightmare. Right. Alex, one franchise I never really got into, though, and mm-hmm. it's our topic for today, is Double Dragon. Ah. Uh... Alex, have you ever played a Double Dragon? Uh, I feel like I'm probably touched one at some point yeah i could believe that because they were very ubiquitous for a while Mm -hmm. then disappeared and then they kind of came back in a really hard way like about i'd say like five years ago or so yeah i guess a little little bit more recent um the weirdly named double dragon 4 by arc 6 i guess did technically come out i think like three years ago at this point Hmm. so yeah it's um they've they've definitely been around I have played a ton of Double Dragon, both in the arcades, on consoles, uh, the terrible fighting games, um, <laughs> the really weird Double Dragon Neon that's incredibly divisive within the community. Mm. Uh, I have played a shocking amount of Double Dragon, and there's only one Double Dragon game I ever actually liked, and that was mm-hmm. Super Double Dragon for the Super Nintendo. Uh, the rest of them, honestly, I think are kind of bad. <laughs> Fair. Now, the reason why I think they're bad is because, uh, I guess just to jump into it, uh, Double Dragon was developed by the Japanese company Technos and released for the arcades in 1987, and it is an incredibly important game. It's a foundational game for video games. Mm. And being a foundational game, that means it's kind of old and long in the tooth. So right. a lot of the ideas that it had by the time I actually played Double Dragon, it was like, yeah, this is incredibly basic. Mm-hmm. But at the time... It was very innovative, and not only will it be a very successful franchise for Technos, but once again, it's going to be super important for the history of video games as a whole. Now, what I mean by that is that much like Capcom Street Fighter, this game, like Street Fighter is considered the series that established fighting game genre, right? right? Mm-hmm. Double Dragon established the beat-em-up genre in the arcades. Mm. It basically did the same thing that Street Fighter did. Right. Now, much like Street Fighter, this is kind of a lie. <laughs> right, sure. Double Dragon wasn't the first beat-em-up out there. That arguably either goes to the 1984 game Kung Fu Master, mm-hmm. which was developed by Irene, or Technos' own Renegade, which was released the year prior, 1986. A fun aside about both those games, by the way. For Renegade, its Japanese name is Nekasesu Kona Kunio-kun, which if uh, that name sounds familiar, it, it sounds like it does to you. Uh-huh. Uh, that's the first game in the Kunio-kun series, which right. includes River City Ransom, a game that is so much better than any Double Dragon <laughs> game ever made. <laughs> uh, for Kung Fu Master, the Nintendo Entertainment System version was designed and directed by Shigeru Miyamoto. Ah, uh, that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah. I did not know that before this podcast. Uh, the sound design was also done by Koji Kondo as well. Huh. Yeah, another uh, Nintendo legend. Right. Yeah, the uh, and in fact, the original game, the original arcade, 1984 arcade game, was designed by Takashi Nishiyama, a name huh. that has been mentioned on this podcast before, as the uh, same guy who created the original Street Fighter, uh, Fatal Fury, King of Fighters, and Samurai Showdown, and the original producer on the first Mega Man. A shockingly important man in video game history yeah. that nobody talks about. It, it, he he is incredibly good at like producing video games that other people go on to make better sequels to. A hundred percent, yes. <laughs> <laughs> not inaccurate. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like, no, that that should not. That comes off as, as flippant, but that is like an incredibly foundational resume. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Like, he is the man who built SNK, essentially. Basically, yeah. So, back to Double Dragon. While it's not the first game in the genre, it's important because, much like Street Fighter, it's going to establish the conventions of the genre that other games such as Final Fight or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is going to build off of. It was multiplayer, mm. which was, I believe, the first of its kind to be multiplayer. Uh, could feature a ton of enemies on screen at once, a ton being like three or four, and the game starts to chug really badly, right, but sure. it still did it. Mm -hmm. And it had a moveset that went beyond jump, kick, and punch. Like, there was, like, a spin kick and other little stuff you could do. Mm. It also just looked nice for 1987, albeit in the same way a bunch of arcade games in 1987 looked nice. Um, mm -hmm. In a way where it's, it's still an 8-bit processor behind everything, but they just had more colors. Right. A kind of look that I actually really, really like. Yeah. Like, I've, I've grown to love it over the years. Yeah, I, th I think it definitely has, like, a place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly does. So how this game even came about, by the way, is by happenstance. So in 1986, Technos developed and released uh, Renegade. And that game was directed by Yoshihisha Kishimoto. Uh, now, this came, another little bit of a aside, but this is too funny because this is a Wikipedia editor who was, I think, was being kind of dumb. Uh -huh. uh, I obviously use other sources other than Wikipedia, but Wikipedia is usually a bit of a first pass. And yeah. They mentioned it's a semi-autobiographical game based on the experiences of Kishimoto. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, the reason because he would get into street fights. Uh, apparently got into a street fight once that was so bad that his girlfriend broke up with him. <laughs> and so he built on some of those experiences to make this game. A game that involves you, like, knifing people, fighting biker gangs in Yakuza, which I'm like, okay, come on. Let's... Yeah, okay. I get what you're saying with this, but that's, that's a really <laughs> funny way of putting that. Mm -hmm. Now... Renegade, Alex, I don't know if you've ever played it. I don't, uh, I'm not completely sure I've ever even seen it. It is a terrible video game. <laughs> it is really, really bad. Mm -hmm. uh, it is incredibly basic, but for what it is back in 1986, it is influential for, it in, for introducing a ton of innovations to the genre. Right. Multiple enemies, uh, basically a plane that you can move up, down, left, and right, instead of just left and right, like in Kung Fu Master. Mm. Um, and like just having like stages as well that are like distinct to one another were things that Renegade brought to the table. Now, this game was pretty successful for them. And Techno saw this and said, hey, Kishimoto, we want you to work on a follow up immediately. Now, he envisioned this to be a sequel to Renegade. That seems very natural, right? Mm -hmm. But Technos came back to him with a few notes. And those notes were that, hey, Renegade did well in Japan. And for some reason, the United Kingdom, but not really anywhere else. 
And so what if you just made this like more of like an international thing, made more an international appeal? Mm -hmm. So he went, okay, sure. I will draw upon inspiration such as Mad Max and Fist of the North Star. And I really like martial arts movies. So why don't we just make it about a duo of martial artists, set it in New York and call it Double Dragon? Gotta say, very good read. Mm Mm-hmm. I need more international appeal. What about martial arts movies? Good mm-hmm. move. Good move. Everyone loves a martial arts movie. They sure do. Yeah. Can have not met a single person who has watched like martial arts movie and came away saying, I hate them all. <laughs> so Double Dragon, named for the fact that it's two players and inspired by Chinese martial arts films, such as Edge with the Dragon, is basically a Renegade sequel. Like, literally, if you put the arcade game of Double Dragon next to the, next to Renegade... Like, the art styles are different, but the way they're set up, the way the Mm -hmm. UI is set up and everything, this is basically just a sequel to it, which makes sense. That's Mm -hmm. what he set out to do. Right. Now, it featured more varied, like, stage designs. Like, there are pits and stuff that you could throw enemies into and whatnot. And once again, had more enemies in general and had two-player cooperative play, which, once again, big innovation at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, Double Dragon tells the story of the Lee brothers, Jimmy and Billy Lee, as they fight through a post-nuclear war New York that <laughs> barely looks like it's been through a nuclear war <laughs> to defeat the Black Warriors, sometimes also known as the Shadow Warriors, a gang that runs New York and is responsible for kidnapping Billy's girlfriend, Marion. Like, the game is famous for, start, like, and has been parodied multiple times mm-hmm. for starting out with just a bunch of gang members walking over to Marion, punching her in the stomach, carrying her away. Uh-huh. And then you walk out of your cool garage with your sports car and go, I'm going to punch every gang member in New York. (laughs) So the game was exactly what Technos was looking for. It was an impressive looking arcade game that did a ton of business internationally, particularly in the United States, where it was the highest grossing arcade game for 1988. Damn. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. It was definitely hitting the right vibe. Mm -hmm. I I also really got to say, I don't think it can be overstated how important that two-player feature probably was. Oh, yeah. Like, that is defining of basically every beat-em-up to follow is, Mm -hmm. yeah, of course, is multiplayer. What, do you want to play a single-player beat-em-up? Are you stupid? No, absolutely not. And yeah, it goes back to, like, what I was talking about, like, the nostalgia of, like, playing beat-em-ups in the arcade, of, like, Mm. playing them with my friends. Yeah. Reason why I mentioned my friends. (laughs) Yeah. No, no one would want to stand around and like watch one person at a time play a beat-em-up. That would be a terrible experience. It would be. Yeah. Like, there's a reason why that X-Men arcade game that's six players and is really basic is (laughs) so cool. Yeah. Because it's six players. Yeah. That was so neat. So, yeah, like, that is incredibly important. And yeah, it's a big reason why this is going to do so well. Now, what's funny, though, we mentioned that multiplayer, but that success wasn't just limited to the arcade game. One year later, the game's going to be ported to the Nintendo Entertainment System, and it's basically going to take the world by storm. Mm -hmm. Now, this version of the game was wildly different. Uh, For one, it was one player. Mm. You Now, technically, it was like technically a two-player game, but it was alternating. Right, okay. AKA the fakest level of multiplayer you could possibly have. Yeah. Now, it was like this due to technical limitations. Uh, Nintendo Entertainment System was a finicky beast, Mm -hmm. even if you had Mm -hmm. mapper chips in there. So, Mm -hmm. makes sense. Uh, only one enemy type could appear on screen at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and it radically changed the gameplay by actually making it like more of a platformer. Like you had to jump over pits hmm. at certain points. There was a leveling up system as you defeated more enemies, you got more moves and got more powerful. Right. And Which, the story, it's... Oh, go ahead. 
it's it's smart. If you can't do everything the arcade version's doing, you should add in things that like support what you can do. Yeah. Yeah, like it's just a smart way of going about it. Like going back to like Turtles in Time for the Super Nintendo, they mm-hmm. totally did that by expanding the game and how it worked. Right. And yeah, because you're like, well, you're on a console. You have to realize you're not just trying to get quarters out of people, right? Right. Yeah. You, this is a game they're going to play for a while. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So the story itself was also changed. In this version, you only play as Billy Lee with the leader of the Shadow Warriors now being Jimmy Lee instead. Ooh. Yes. They're also more upfront in the instruction manual about there being a nuclear war and whatnot. So okay. you actually know about this instead of in the arcade game where it's like, I guess there technically was one. I'm walking through this nice park right now. So, despite these changes, the game ended up doing arguably even better than the arcade version. While we don't have exact numbers, it supposedly sold around 100,000 copies within the first month of release Mm. and garnered the same level of demand in that holiday season as the Nintendo games Super Mario Bros. 2 and The Legend of Zelda 2. Wow. Outside of the Nintendo Entertainment System, Ports of the game to the Amiga and other personal computer platforms would sell over 200,000 copies in the United Kingdom alone. Critical reception was also very favorable to this version, with Electronic Gaming Monthly naming it their Game of the Year for 1998. It should also be really notable that like a lot of times when you see screenshots of Double Dragon, it's the NES version. This uh-huh. is the one with the cultural cachet, I right. found. Makes sense. So, huge success. Probably the biggest success Techno is has ever had. Mm-hmm. So in 1988, they obviously want to follow up to this game, and so they release Double Dragon 2, The Revenge. <laughs> now, this was supposed to be one of like the last upgrade kit games. Uh, for those of you who don't know, an upgrade kit was literally you just slot in a new board into an existing arcade machine, and it works with the existing parts in there to basically give you a new game. Miss mm-hmm. Pac-Man was famously one of these, for instance. Right, right. But after seeing how ridiculously successful the first game was, they said, screw it, we're just going to make a new dedicated cabinet. Now, because of this, this game is very, very similar to the original, like expanded mm-hmm. in some ways, but it's it's kind of one to one in other ways. Right. But Alex, I do have to say that the opening to this game is bonkers, or at least bonkers by 1988 standards. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to show you something. All right. Let's see it. Watch how this game starts. Oh, my God. They just gun down Marion. Yep, she's dead. And they just walk away. <laughs> okay. And then you come out with your sweet-ass attack helicopter. <laughs> ignore the, the attack helicopter, and you just get into a fight. Sure, yeah, okay. It is amazing. <laughs> really, really upping the ante there. Mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> it should be notable in the NES game. They do not do that. She yeah, just gets I, kidnapped mm, again. <laughs> really, yeah, Nintendo wasn't super cool with her just getting gunned down in the first three seconds. No, they were not. <laughs> oh yeah it's 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 amazing so yeah so for those who didn't see the clip i think i pretty already thoroughly described it i don't know how to describe it more but marion gets gunned down by the leader of the shadow warriors a guy named willie (laughs) (laughs) and so billy and jimmy go to get revenge leaving their attack helicopter behind so this game and its super its nintendo entertainment system port were also incredibly successful And because of that, it's now time to do what every mildly successful Japanese company does when they have a hit, Alex. Let's do it. Run this shit into the ground. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, and man, they're going to be amazingly aggressive about this. Because, like, once again, this comes out in 1988. 
I would argue that Double Dragon is going to reach its heyday roughly about 1990, because that's when the NES version of Double Dragon 2 comes out. Mm -hmm. And then by 94, this thing might as well not exist. Yeah. (laughs) So how this is going to go is that this is going to be the high point, because according to Yoshihisha Kishimoto, the original director and designer for these games, Technos didn't really care about Double Dragon other than a means to make money. Yeah. Now, that's obviously going to be sound like a really silly thing from a company trying to make money, but in a sense, they didn't want to really protect the IP, is what he's trying to say, mm-hmm. by being maybe a little bit more selective. Right. Which, to be fair, they were hardly the only ones at that time. No. There's a reason why I said they were going to do what every mildly yeah. successful Japanese company does. Freaking Nintendo was not protective of their IPs at this point in time. They were not. They were not at all. Like, how to expand upon this, Technos is going to be more than happy to hire other studios to make games in the series at cut rates. Mm. And they're going to get that started right away with the 1990 arcade game Double Double Dragon 3 The Rosetta Stone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah, that's just just a promising subtitle. I hear that subtitle, I'm like, I bet this game is really good. Oh, I bet. Now, this game was developed by East Technology, a company I've never heard of before. Mm. And this is going to be another clip I'm going to show you, Alex. Okay. Because you just got to see how this game even runs. Yeah, let's let's see this. Oh. Look how this runs. Oh, no. Like, oh. everything... Mm. Yeah, like, everything about how it runs, like, so stilted. In a yep. way that I was like, is it just being emulated badly in this YouTube video? And then, no, you just see how, like, the enemies animate, and you're like, oh, no, actually, this is just... They intended this 100%. Why would you need more than four frames of animation per character? Well, that's the crazy thing. It's four frames of animation on the main character. The bad guys were moving around just fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Mm -hmm. Alex, this game is a nightmare. (laughs) Okay, so let me describe this for you. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you the premise for this game. Okay. What if you had a three-player beat-em-up that featured six total playable characters, a variety of ways to power up your character's strength, health, give them new fighting moves in the middle of the game, and even unique weapons? What if he had that, right? That sounds pretty rad. That sounds like a beat-em-up that has, like, a lot of replayable multiplayer fun. It absolutely does. Now, what if I told you, in order to use any of these, you had to go to an in-game shop and then put quarters into the machine in order to buy all these things? (sighs) Alex, they super off-roaded a beat-em-up. And... And in a a genre that already is tuned to basically take, I would say, on average, $5 of 1990s money out of Mm -hmm. you per play, they said, but what if you gave us more money? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it is an incredibly bonkers way of doing it. And it's insanely monetized to hell and back in such a way that this game actually gets released in Japan after it's released in the United States. Mm Mm-hmm. They're going to strip all of this out and just let Ooh. you get all that stuff naturally in game. Right. You just select one of the six characters at the start. Like, it, I imagine it makes the game infinitely more playable. I assume so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not great. No. So the game's story also is nuts. So they dropped the premise of it being post-apocalyptic. Okay. Because, well, to be fair, they were barely trying in the first place. Right, didn't seem to really contribute to much. No. And basically, a fortune teller has a vision that the Lee brothers will fight their strongest adversary ever, but they can only do so if they find the three Rosetta Stones scattered throughout the world. 
Okay. Upon getting them, they travel to Egypt where they fight Cleopatra. What? <laughs> okay, sure, that might as well happen. Oh, and Cleopatra's bullshit, too. She has a telekinesis move where she'll just, like, lift her hand up, and then you just get instantly get hit across the screen. Oh, good. Yeah, and she, oh, she can chain it, too, and juggle you with it. Oh, of course she can. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is garbage, Alex. It's garbage. Now, when you beat her, you get her riches, and the Lee brothers decide to donate it to charity. Sure. It's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty bad. But, Alex, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. we can look at this, divorce it from the context of when it was released, and go, that's a bad game, right? Right. When you remember it came out in 1990, or a full year after Capcom's final fight, the new standard bearer for the genre, mm-hmm. as well as Konami's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game, right? it looks incredibly bad. Yep, not going well. And guess what? The genre as a whole is going to kind of stay strong at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the same year that the Simpsons arcade game is going to come out. Like, Turtles in Time's gonna follow it up, at, like, shortly after this. Not to mention, like, Capcom's gonna do a whole bunch of cool beat-em-ups, like Nights mm-hmm. in the Round and whatnot. Yeah, it's... It's not gonna be good for Technos, which, given that right now, their bread and butter is making beat-em-up games, mm-hmm. that's gonna be really bad for them. Kinda need to get those right. Yeah, kinda do. Now, to be fair, in 1992, they're gonna try again with a console-only game, Super Double Dragon, which is an actual good game for the, like, good beat-em-up game. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually have a pretty varied moveset where you can actually charge attacks and whatnot um, as you, like, mm. you know, fight through the you know, city streets in a quasi-remake of the first game. Right. Uh, it's not going to set the world on fire. It's going to be horrifically rushed to the point that they're going to remove things like cutscenes and uh, even whole stages. Mm. Um, literally, the cutting room floor uh, page on it just starts out with a defi- definition of rushed. <laughs> So, it's not going to set the world on fire. Right. So, the following year after that, the incredibly bad Double Dragon cartoon is also going to come out. Yeah. And at this point, the world's going to be pretty damn sick of Double Dragon. And now, once again, Technos is going to be pretty hard up financially as well, because not mm-hmm. only was Double Dragon floundering, but their other major franchise, Kunio-kun, aka mm-hmm. River City Ransom, was mm-hmm. also suffering from the exact same problem of oversaturation. Right. It perhaps doing a bit better in the quality aspect of the games. Like, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of bad Kunio Kun games, in my opinion. Yeah, they've they've always seemed Kunio Kun's always seemed pretty high quality and like mm. surprisingly varied. Like they're not all beat 'em ups. No, like there's a sh- surprising amount of like good sports games. For yeah, instance. yeah, um, yeah. They like do a good job of maintaining quality. It's just another case where like I think one year they had like three of them, and it's like right. no, that's that's a little too much. And also like. I think most of them weren't released outside of Japan. Like, we got the one we called River City Ransom, and that was, Mm -hmm. like, it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it was a big deal when they finally released, like, the Super Nintendo beat-em-up, like, over here. Right. It was like, yeah, we're just putting this out, more or less as an advertisement for River City Girls. Yeah, yeah, this is River City Girls Zero. Are the River City Girls in it? No. No. (laughs) Actually, they technically are. They are two playable characters in it. Oh, okay. I guess yeah. they, they put them in. They did. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, the branding can't be a complete lie, so. Yeah, it can't be a complete lie, no. But yeah. Um, so yeah, Neil has to say, Technos was like, okay, we, we need to figure something out here. And so Technos said, okay, well, what if we made a fighting game? What if we just mm-hmm. did that? Double Dragon mm-hmm. 5 is going to be a fighting game. And they said, oh, wait, wait, wait. We mean, what if we licensed the game to publisher Trade West 
who then made a fighting game sort of based on the cartoon that was terrible. And then Techno oh. said, oh, wait, wait, wait. We'll make a fighting game for the Neo Geo, and it'll be good oh. this time, we promised. Oh, no. So this game would be released in 1995, and it's actually a pretty decent fighting game. Okay. But by that point, it's a little too late for Technos, yeah. who just one year later would actually go out of business. But Alex, there's a funny thing here. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about the story is that I lied to you, Alex. Mm-hmm. I've been lying to you for the past four pages mm. of notes, uh-huh. which I can tell you, you are not surprised by this. No, I'm not. I, um, knowing how many of episodes of this we're going to do and the fact that we've already gone through most of the series, I can guess where this is going. Yeah, you probably could have. Yeah. Because you see, the, um, the Neo Geo game was actually a stealth license game, mm-hmm. stealthily based upon the Double Dragon movie. Yeah. A real topic. Oh, man. <laughs> I've never seen this movie. I've seen clips of this movie. This movie mm-hmm. looks like a mess. Oh, Alex. Yes, it is. And a mess that I honestly came in expecting to watch it and just completely slag it. Mm-hmm. And I came out with finding it far more interesting than expected because this was mm. only supposed to be one episode. Okay. And then I watched this and went and like looked into the production and went, actually, there's maybe something more to this. Mm. Now, the Double Dragon movie, also known as Double Dragon colon the movie, was <laughs> released in 1994 to basically zero fanfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is maybe one of the most misguided movie adap- adaptations ever. And I mean that in the sense of deciding the du- that Double Dragon, a series that hit its heyday in 1989, it was nothing but bad from there on, was a good series to adapt for a movie in 1994. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's spiritually based on kung fu movies, so all you have to mm-hmm. do is make a good kung fu movie? Yeah, and you'll get most of the way there, right? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, it also has the honor, Alex, of being mm-hmm. the second ever live-action Hollywood adaptation of the game series. Uh Yeah, just Mm -hmm. barely beating out Street Fighter by almost two months, releasing in a kind of dead period of November 4th, 1994. Mm. I I forgot that actually uh, Street Fighter was a Christmas movie. It was released uh, December 23rd. Oh, yeah. Mm. It was also universally reviled then (laughs) as it is now. Yeah. It has a 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and there are a ton of videos on YouTube that are more than happy to tell you that this movie is terrible in an overly verbose way. It, it was kind of an amazing one, two, three punch of Mario Double Dragon Street Fighter that just killed video game movies. Yeah, like to the point that when Mortal Kombat came out the next year, it was half decent. Everyone yeah. went, oh, wow. OK, so you can make a good movie. Yeah. And then Annihilation happened. And then Annihilation <laughs> happened. And yeah, it's <laughs> it's been tough sledding since yep. then. Oh, boy. Mm hmm. So basically what I'm trying to say about this is that. Unlike, say, like Street Fighter, mm-hmm. it really hadn't had its reputation rehabilitated, despite honestly bringing much of the same campy energy to this movie that right. Street Fighter did for itself. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a very campy movie. Yeah. Now, this is not going to be for a lack of trying, and I think we should talk a little bit about how this even came about. So, there are a few sources I used for this next session. This is just going to be a bit of a PSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in large parts of this are going to be come, coming from two primary sources. Uh, The first is from a Game Informer article by Kyle Hilliard that was published in February 2019 called Double Dragon, the Forgotten Bad Video Game Movie. Very good article. It features Mm -hmm. a very extensive interview with director James Yukich. 
Uh, I also referenced a video from YouTuber Matt McMuscles as part of his What Happened series of YouTube videos that, judging from some of the quotes used in this video, I believe he also heavily references this very article. Mm-hmm. Probably. What this, yeah. So what this means is that I am mostly operating off of one primary source, and that's mm-hmm. essentially the word of the director. Right. There are some production interviews with stars Robert Patrick and others that I did read up about before this, but I did want to be upfront that there isn't a ton of information out there about this movie to begin with, which Mm -hmm. is not ideal, but bear that in mind. Yeah, fair enough. So, Alex, the story goes that in 1992, Don Murphy either saw or played Double Dragon 3 himself in the arcades. Rough game to play. Yeah, I'm going to guess that he probably mostly saw it and maybe played it for five minutes. Mm-hmm. He must have, because apparently he was impressed by it. Okay. And he recently had a new production company, Imperial Entertainment Group, and they were looking for a potential new intellectual property they could license for an action movie, and he said, Double Dragon will be perfect, because he had a passing familiarity with how popular the series was. Uh-huh. So, by 1992, Double Dragon was already starting to fade as a popular franchise, but it wasn't quite cooked yet. Once again, a new and actually good game was going to come out that year for the Super Nintendo, and the cartoon would be out the following year. It was certainly well on its way to just losing steam. Right. By 1994, it's going to be well on its way to being dead, but at least at the time, it seemed like a good idea. So right away, Don Murphy and the other producers on this wanted it to be a movie that would appeal to teenagers and young adults. And to accomplish this, they're going to bring in a scriptwriter who at this time had a very impressive pedigree, Paul Dini. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I was kind of, there's a lot of very surprising names that are going to yeah. come up here. So Paul Dini, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, alongside Bruce Timm, was responsible for the incredibly successful Batman the Animated Series, an Emmy Award-winning show that many consider to not just be one of the greatest cartoons ever made, but one of the greatest TV shows ever made. Uh, the start of the DC animated universe, kind of one of mm-hmm. the first really successful mass market, like comic book crossover properties that was outside of comics, like very, very successful stuff. Yep. Incredibly successful, incredibly well regarded even today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we don't know what sort of script he ultimately wrote, but we do know something was delivered to Don Murphy that was actionable enough to make a movie. So next, they're going to hire a director, and this is when things are going to start to get messy. Mm. They're going to hire James Yukich. So James Yukich was a bit of an unknown then, mm-hmm. and Alex, he's still an unknown now, because yeah. this is going to be his only major film he's going to do. Yeah. Now, confusingly, they're going to do something very similar with the Super Mario movie, in that they're going to hire a director who, at this point, was mostly known for doing music videos. I don't hmm. know why this is a trend. I don't know. Freaking uh, Warner Brothers did the same thing with Man of Steel and their pulled DC cinematic universe. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah, just, I mean, I guess a well-crafted music video, you go, nah, you know, you could do that over an hour and 30. Why not? Yeah, right? uh, you get style, certainly. Yeah, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Yeah, and so for like Jukic, his work previously involved doing music videos for the band Genesis, uh, specifically for songs like That's All and Invisible Touch. Now, once again, this makes it two for two for video game movies that hired music video directors for some reason. Mm -hmm. Though, unlike the Super Mario movie, which had a budget of like a gazillion dollars, Mm. and that made like thoroughly no sense, Uh 
This movie, at least, was going to have a modest budget, roughly about, I believe, $7.2 million. Okay. So it sort of made sense that they were not going to get a big name for the director. Right. And, like, again, ideally, they'd be making a kung fu movie. They don't need a ton of money. Mm. They're, like, famously easy to do well on the cheap if you can just get, like, a good stunt team. Yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. And... They're going to try to do that, and things are going to go wrong in that regard. Yeah, of course. Things are also going to go wrong because Yukich is going to immediately have different ideas of what this movie should be. Mm. So he takes a look at Dini's script and decides it's too dark, and instead mm. brings on two other writers, Michael Davis and Peter Gold, to do a punch-up on the script. So Michael Davis, uh, just to describe both of these people, Michael Davis was at this point probably best known for making campy monster movies like okay. Prehysteria and Pet Shop. Okay. Uh, not really much else to say about him. Seems like he's a fun guy. Mm-hmm. Peter Gold is probably the more interesting of the two. At this point, I believe he was mostly doing commercials, as this is his like first credited like writing gig in Hollywood. Right. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because eventually he's going to become one of the main writers and showrunners for both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Ah, interesting. And, yeah. In fact, the latter half of Better Call Saul, he is going to be the executive producer of. Hmm. Yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that this is right away, there's going to be a lot of writing talent involved on this. Right. I'm also going to say this is now somehow two for two for podcast episodes in a row where I somehow brought up Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. (laughs) Two shows that I have never actually watched. Me me neither, actually. But their cultural influence at this point is just that significant. Indeed it is. Now... It may seem a little weird that they brought in other writers to do a punch-up, but this is relatively common in Hollywood to do this, to make changes to an existing script. And from everything I've heard, there's nothing here that would be out of place in any other production. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're eventually going to bring in another comedy writer whose name is just dropping out of my brain. He would eventually go on to help produce that 70s show, so he has a pedigree himself Mm -hmm. uh, to help put in some extra jokes and whatnot. But um, the point is, is that... Nothing about this is too particularly crazy. The issue appears instead to be between James Yukich and the producers. As Yukich would later explain, quote, You have to have one unified direction or it's not going to make sense. And we didn't really have one united direction. He then goes on to say, quote, I love those guys. I think they were all fantastic. But they each had their own visions and couldn't agree on it. I blame myself a lot for not going and saying, Hey, we got to do it like this. End quote. Right. Now, what I mean by that is that the producers wanted to make a movie for adults. But Yukich looked at the source material and thought this would be better suited for children. So that's the movie he's going to set out to make. He's going to make a kid's movie. Mm, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, mm, this is like the Mario movie in reverse. Mm-hmm, but it's right? basically the same basic flaw that's going to undermine everything. Yeah, starting out, in the case of Mario movie, starting out with a script for kids that eventually gets morphed into something weirdly dark and involving strippers. Yeah. To, yeah, starting out with something dark involving Paul Dini, somebody who is not averse to writing strippers into his his comics, (laughs) (laughs) and then getting eventually molded into a kid's movie. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of weird how that works. Yep. Kind of looking in the mirror there. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I do have to say, I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to do a it's kung fu movie. Yeah, I think there is a place for that. I think it can work. 
Yeah, and I think this movie is going to be it is going to be a kids movie through and through. Mm-hmm. Like tonally, and even the way it's shot would not be out of place as like a weird, also grand copy of like Big Bad Beelbergs, mm-hmm. or like much less like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers that would air on something like UPN at an right. awkward time in the morning. Uh-huh. There is zero blood, very minimal cursing, exactly two instances of the mildest sexual innuendo, and a story that if you ignore the contrived backstory they set up, is a rather by-the-numbers revenge tale. Mm. Uh, so, because of that, it honestly feels like this they more or less are going to accomplish what they set out to do. One thing I found very interesting from some of the um, uh, reviews that I've read of this is that they seemed very confused that this was, like, a kid's movie. They're like, why did they make this a kid's movie? And it's like, well, you know, they just wanted to make it for kids. Like, you can right. do it that way. It's, yeah. Right? We're not violating the sanctity of Double Dragon by making it a kids movie. It's fine. <laughs> right. I mean, like, that is kind of probably the audience that mm-hmm. the Double Dragon would have installed. Yeah. Especially if there's going to be a cartoon show coming out in a year. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, and- it, kids have played it. Kids are going to be watching it. Yeah. Sure. Let, yeah. It, let it be a kids series. Absolutely. And really, by this point, like the video game audience was starting to grow up and like teenagers mm. and and young adults were, you know, starting to get in on it, aging up from being kids themselves and like the right. Atari and NES eras. But it was still primarily a kid driven business. So it sort of makes sense to market this towards kids. Mm-hmm. So with all this done, they had to get the actors and actresses and they're actually are going to swing pretty hard and land some big names for this. Now, for the main characters of Billy and Jimmy Lee, they're going to land Scott Wolf and Mark, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, the Cascos. I believe it's Mark the Cascos, respectively. While the Cascos was a relative unknown, Scott Wolf was a regular guest on Saved by the Bell and later would star in Party of Five, the teen drama on Fox that ran for six seasons. The main villain of Shuko was meant to be for an Asian actor, but inexplicably went to Robert Patrick instead. <laughs> Patrick ostensibly the biggest gift for the movie, had previously played the T-1000 in Terminator 2. In that movie, he's a stoic and scary-as-hell liquid metal machine. Mm -hmm. In this movie, he plays the exact opposite character in Shuko, a character hastily rewritten to be a white man who thinks he's the reincarnation of a Japanese warlord (laughs) who hams it up from scene to scene. Uh, he, Robert, he does great, I think. His, uh, the character that was written for him is so stupid. It is so stupid. And like he like he hams it up real mm-hmm. well. Like, and to be fair, he talks about it like being like, actually, it felt really liberating after playing like a T-1000 and having mm-hmm. like basically no dialogue and just right. having to emote with his body. Yeah. To being like, this is like really liberating. Like, I really like just being able to like exercise my acting muscles and just being mm-hmm. able to be over the top. And he also talks about it was like, it was just also fun to hang out with the cast and crew and just like dick around a bit. Like, yeah, you see, he seemed like he had a blast. So good for yeah. him. Yeah. Love that. Also, apparently he was hounded for the better part of a year by Don Murphy, the star in this movie. For reasons <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> so if Robert Patrick wasn't the biggest skit, then it certainly was going to be the lead actress. Alyssa Milano was selected to play Marion. Mm. Now, Alyssa Milano at this point in her career had just got done playing one of the main characters in the hit TV show, Who's the Boss? A role that was so successful that she actually went to the White House and met Nancy Reagan. Wow. Yeah. While her film career is never going to really take off, Mm -hmm. she's going to continue to be an in-demand TV star. 
having a successful turn on the TV show Melrose Place, mm. as well as playing the lead character in Charmed. Combined with the fact that she was a sex symbol in the 90s, that meant she was all over the place for the better part of 10 years in advertisements, TV, and also a significant amount of advocacy work as well, including up to the present day, uh, including mm. lobbying for stricter gun laws, doing get-out-the-vote campaigns, and even phone banking for um, uh, for Democratic senator candidates and whatnot. Hmm, cool. uh, she's a pretty cool person overall, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Sounds cool. Yeah. So, they got started on filming on location in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. A fact that I found out, because in the movie, they filmed the, like, the police station, and outside, it has a the flag of Ohio, which I went, <laughs> that's a, being a flag nerd, I was like, that's, that's the flag of Ohio. I, I gotta look this up. And I was right. And Alex, this is gonna be very relevant to the story, because things are gonna immediately go wrong. Yeah. As most things in Cleveland do. True. The, so, to start with, the director of photography, who apparently did have a lot of work on, like, mo- like martial arts films, mm-hmm. is, like, within the first week, gonna fall down a hill and seriously injure his back. Uh. Now, He's going to be a trooper about this. And at first, they're going to strap him to a gurney and just wheel him around <laughs> as he basically tries to direct the scenes uh-huh. and get the right shots for all the action sequences by, like, looking at a monitor and whatnot. Right, right. But this almost immediately proves to be untenable. Yeah, it's that, that, something like that's just not going to work. Yeah, that, that's hard to frame a shot from a gurney. Mm-hmm. And also because of the undoubtedly unbearable pain he just mm-hmm. had to be in. Yep, I'm sure. So he's going to be replaced by the assistant director for the rest of filming. And from my understand, he was confident, but not particularly used to framing action sequences. Right. A problem in an action movie. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't stop there. Yukich, what with this being this is like first major movie he's directed, mm-hmm. wasn't quite used to setting up certain scenes and would reportedly waste like multiple days trying to get the right shot done. Right. Only to just completely, like, fail and, like, waste, like, days of filming. Mm. One particular shot was a boat chase that was supposed to be more or less done in one full take. Mm-hmm. and included a shot of the camera starting out underwater before slowly lifting up above the water to capture the entire thing. Mm. This was very ambitious. And from what I understand, was basically an impossible task for the crew. And so they basically just did a composite shot instead. Uh. Speaking of this boat scene. This boat chase, which features a million explosions, <laughs> took place on a river whose name I'm going to mispronounce, the Cuyahoga River. Now, Alex, this is a famous river. Mm. It is famous because it was at one point the most polluted river in the United States. Is this the one that caught fire? Oh, yeah, about 13 times between the 1890s to 1980. Cool. Yes, that's that right. That sounds like a really good place to set off a whole lot of explosions. <laughs> you better believe it is. <laughs> Now, to be fair, they are not going to unintentionally light the river on fire. There'll okay. be, like, periods of, like, gas burning on, like, the surface of the water, but that's just for dramatic effect. Right, yeah, yeah. But what they are going to do is that they are going to dump about 700 gallons of gasoline and 200 gallons of grain alcohol in order to create such a large explosion that, since they did not adequately inform the public about, uh... is going to cause such a commotion that emergency lines in the area were going to be tied up for about 10 to 15 minutes as people tried to report a large explosion on the river. Because, of course, Clevelanders are a little sensitive to the river that catches on fire multiple <laughs> times. Just a little bit. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, that clearly a pretty big logistical snafu. Yeah. I do have to say, though, I do kind of miss the days of lighting 
like surfaces of water on fire in action movies. Yeah. There's a, there's been a significant downtick of like water on fire in action scenes. There really has been. Yeah, you just don't see it anymore. Like it's either just done with CGI or it's yeah. not done at all. Yeah, it's it, there's an explosion, but like just fire on top of water is like a very distinctly 90s motif. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's I I'm I'm sad about it too. So, filming wasn't exactly going great. No. And it was around this time that the Super Mario movie came out. So, the cast and crew mm. actually went to go see that movie, and upon seeing it, felt actually quite a bit better about themselves. Right, yeah, I imagine. <laughs> As James Yukich explained upon watching it, quote, We thought, we could certainly do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> Which is simultaneously an extremely reasonable thought to have, but also mm-hmm. turns out to be very arrogant. It is very arrogant. Uh, and he like later explains, quote, I don't know if we did. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get to my review at the end of the second episode. Okay. I'll give my thoughts about whether or not they surpassed it, but mm. I'll, I'll leave that. I, I will say that um, the viewers did not think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the movie was filmed, it was finished, and then they hit a huge roadblock. After being viewed by the Motion Picture Association of America, it was classified as PG-13. Uh-oh. Yeah, this horrified Yukic, who felt it was going to conflict with his target demographic of kids. Right. What's worse for him, however, is that he was given zero opportunity, according to him, to edit the movie. Apparently, according to him, the producers were satisfied and decided to release it as is. As Yukic would later explain, this is a kid's movie. This could right. have been a great kid's movie. Mm-hmm. As an adult watching the movie, I would have thought... This is the worst action movie I've ever seen. End right. quote. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, I watching the movie, I I think I know why it's gonna be PG thirteen, but it is instances that yeah could have been easily edited out. Right. And those are two scenes of where a guy looks at Alyssa Milano's butt, and the implication of the mom character getting blown up. In a fact, well, a movie theater, mm-hmm. which once again implied, heavily implied, never actually shown, but I could see maybe because of those three things, them being like, especially back in the nineties, where it's like, oh, sex, no, that's immediately we're, we're bumping right. it up, you know, them bumping up the PG thirteen and things that yeah, you could easily have edited those out, like right. It, it turns out looking at Alyssa Milano's butt is does not really add anything to the movie. Turns, turns out. out. Just since it was already brought up, I feel like the Batman animated series got away with, like, that and way worse. They did, yes. Yes. Um, th- as an aside, the funny way that they did so, though, was by making it incredibly old-timey. Right, fair. They found that, like, modern guns would get them slapped down, but Tommy guns were fine. Mm, right. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, and it was also a status quo that didn't last forever anyways, yeah, because eventually also, they yeah. said, no, you can't do Tommy guns either. Right, yeah. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no, that's fine. I was just thinking, like, the also the Art Deco architectural mm-hmm. style and sort of less saturated coloring. Yeah, just gave it, like, an old-timey effect that's, like, even when tragic things happen, they felt sort of, I don't know, like, almost storybook isn't quite the right word, but there, there's a certain detachment from it, I guess. They were a lot bigger on um, intention and implication. Right. Yeah, instead of just showing it. Yeah. 
to the point that when they re- when they did actually show something like that, it actually was far more striking because of that. Yeah. Yeah, big reason why something like Mask of the Phantasm is so good, for instance. Yeah, yeah. God, Batman the Animated Series was so good. It is an amazing, amazing so, series. So good. And it's crazy how they would just continue, like, just, they would continue churning out hits after that. Like, Superman yeah. the Animated Series was great. Justice League, fantastic. Like, mm-hmm. ah, man. Okay, that was a hell of a side. Yeah, getting back to Getting back to the finish of Double Dragon. <laughs> so, yeah, worst action movie for adults you could ever possibly see, and that's right. how the critics responded. It was noted as being clumsily placed and amateurishly acted with jumpy nonstop energy that won't satisfy even the most fervent of fans. Mm. It was it was also kind of sent out to die. Once again, mm-hmm. early November is not exactly a good time to release a movie. No, not unless it's like gonna hit real hard. Right? And it was also released to a little more than a thousand theaters, which... Oof. Yeah, that means major markets only usually, and mm-hmm. even some major markets may miss out or only have right. like one to two theaters. Like, I lived in El Paso, which would con- technically constitute a major market, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it was on one theater on the other side of town because of that. Right. Typically, for a major release, you're looking at 2,500 to 3,000 theaters, for instance. Mm-hmm. Right. So to only do 1,000 is kind of bad. Now, because of all these difficulties, it's going to barely gross $4 million by the end of its run off of a budget of about $7.8 million. Mm. It was a failure. Yep. The movie would come and go and be forgotten. When Yukich would later be interviewed in 2019, he would admit to having not thought of the movie in years. But upon revisiting it, he said, quote, There were all kinds of problems along the way. I look back on it now and think, what an interesting, funny kids movie. And it's a mm. shame they didn't see it when it came out. End quote. And I think that's the perfect way to end this. It's... And next time, we're going to go ahead and talk about the plot of Double Dragon and maybe kind of give a little bit more of my thoughts about whether or not they actually succeeded in their aims. Once again, that'll be for next time. Alex, how are you feeling? Uh, pretty good, I think. Um, I'm, this is one of those interesting stories. Like, all three of those movies we mentioned, Mario, Double Dragon, and Street Fighter, kind mm-hmm. of fell into really similar pitfalls yeah. of, like... They were a hit property that the the game company didn't know what to do with, so they just mm-hmm. sort of shut it out to whoever thought they could do something with it. Mm-hmm. And then 90s movie making happened Yep. to them. Yep. And then, yeah, unsurprisingly, it ended up being like kind of a weird mess where they just didn't really know what to do with it. Yeah. And it, it's a little sad because Double Dragon, out of all of them, probably had the least amount of baggage where they could actually do something about it. Right. Like, as a bit of a funny aside, uh, in a lot of the YouTube videos I watched, they complain about how there's not a whole lot of elements of Double Dragon in it besides the brothers, Marion, and Abobo, the first boss of the game. Right. And they're like, well, why wasn't there more, like, characters from Double Dragon? And it's like, you actually remember the other characters in Double Dragon? Yeah. I barely remember those characters. Like, literally, the boss of the sixth stage is just a Bobo with a mohawk that he named a different <laughs> character. It doesn't, that doesn't count. I'm sorry. Right. There is, There's, there is not deep double dragon lore. There isn't. It's, it is a karate movie that set, is set in a vague post-apocalyptic world that you could even cut that out and it's probably fine. Yeah. So, yeah, having that least amount of baggage, they probably had the best chance at making an actual decent movie out of it. And right. for critics, they, well, they didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's really too bad. But we'll see once again next time how they end up doing with it. 
Well, Alex, thank you so much for doing this with me as always. Of course. And for you, the viewer, if you want to listen to other episodes of Fallen Through Plot Holes, such as the follow-up to this episode that will be coming out next week, or is already out, depending on when you listen to this, mm-hmm. you should go to ftp.podby.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes on your podcast service of choice. Please leave us a review and tell us about what your favorite bad video game movie is. Tell us if you think Blood Rain is good. Don't, it's not. Don't tell us that. You're wrong. Yeah, you're probably going to be wrong. <laughs> if you say it's good, you're wrong. If you say it's bad, it's wrong. We're just going to just disagree with you to be contrarian. Just letting you know now. Or at least I will be. But with that, take care, everybody. Take care.